thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. I remember flying in the first day and just in awe of the destruction from a wave. My first image was how high the wave went up the mountain because it just tore everything out. And as we were getting ready to land on the helicopter pad, we realized it's the foundation of a house that's not here anymore that somebody was smart enough to put an H on. Hey everyone, Jello here. Before we get to this week's interview, I just want to acknowledge that some of you have said since our 2023 pivot to video, the show seems a little more sterile and that you missed the bantering and the announcements and the listener questions that we brought back on the most recent episode with Ken Katz and Bam Bam on First Flights. So I just want to take a moment here to acknowledge that and to tell you that I'm going to try to bring that back to these numbered episodes that have a YouTube equivalent, even if it's only on the audio version, and even if it's just me bantering or letting you know what's going on in my life or answering listener questions or whatever the case may be. And on that note, I did have some listener questions that I answered on email recently. One was from Joey about why didn't the AIM-54 Phoenix get adapted to the F-18 when the F-14 went away. And I was very gentle, but I basically told Joey that it came down to, in my opinion, money, weight, and need. But at any rate, we might bring back the listener hotline and you can continue to email the show at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. And I'll keep you up to date on what's happening with my family and other job But I want to acknowledge that you, the listeners, kind of run the show, and I'm still having fun with it as I work on my memoirs. And of course, if we're going to do this little bantering, then you have to put up with my promotions of various things, like our website that we are revamping and will be new and refreshed soon, and we'll have a lot of shop options for cool merch and books, as well as our Patreon page, which for the around 400 of you that are on there, you know it's a best-kept secret where we have a lot of this kind of stuff all the time and other cool content and inside information on the show. So if you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to pay it back a little bit, head on over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast and consider signing up because we have a lot of fun and it's not just a function of the tier that you select for the things you get these days. We have these milestone perks so when you cross a certain giving amount, I'm going to send you something. So just a few minutes here to announce that that's what we're looking to do on these numbered episodes, even just the audio version. And so I hope you like it and please keep the feedback coming one way or the other. All right, with that, let's get to today's episode. It's on humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. And it features a new friend of mine who lives here on Coronado, Sugar Bear. I know you're really gonna enjoy it. Here we go. When you stop and think about the effects of military forces, you might rightfully focus on the destructive effects of weapons. But did you know during times of natural disaster and civil unrest, those same weapon systems and command and control structures that destroy and kill can be useful to help and heal? 
Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And joining me today in the Circle Air Group studios here at Gillespie Field in San Diego, California, to talk about the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief effort of the military forces is retired U.S. Navy Captain Alan Worthy. Sugar Bear, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't know if I can call you Sugar Bear. You can't. You shouldn't. <laughs> There's probably an age limit that you probably shouldn't use. Yeah, it, so. that's tough. I might just have to call you Al if that's all right. That works for me. Well, first off, thanks for doing this. We have been working on this for a few weeks. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, your done. busy schedule, my busy schedule. But I don't know. What do you think about my intro there? I mean, right? We're used to bombs and guns, and but that's not all military does. No, no I, I think it's perfect. I think you're spot on to the, the help and hurt. And when I go back on to my career, I've probably done more help than hurt. There you go. And that's a great segue into my first question usually, which is, let's get to know you. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? What did you do in the military? And maybe end with what you're doing now. Al Worthy, retired Navy captain, helo pilot. I'm an Army brat, so I consider myself homeless. I think this June will be my fourth year in San Diego at one point in time. That'll be the longest ever. Graduated in high school in a small town, Pennsylvania, ROTC at the George Washington University. The change to the during my time there. Went to flight school, Pensacola, the whole you know, the process. 28 years flying 46s and then 60 Sierras. Retired out of Air Forces here in San Diego and transitioned in October 2021 to Lockheed Martin here in San Diego. Well, come on, you, you blushed over a little too much, so you had a command in there at some point, right? You know, trying to be humble. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, I'm so humble, just <laughs> ask me. I mean, I had the golden path of naval aviation, as you're supposed to. Did six tours here in San Diego, so wow. nobody feels for me at all. I had command of the 2515th Naval Air Ambulance Detachment, which is the medevac unit in Basra, Iraq, and oh. Kuwait for deployment. That was absolutely amazing. Fortunate to have command of HSC-23 in San Diego, right across from the I-Bar in the old VS building, which is the best and worst location to have command of a squadron. Did a couple of tours on the staff here, non-flying in UCOM in uh, Europe, where I volunteered for the Ukraine desk a month before Russia annexed Crimea. So really good learning experience in that. Commodore for Helicopter Sea Combat Wing Atlantic, which is the DISCA package requirement for fleet forces. I didn't know that until I got there. Okay. And, and DISCA, uh, real quick, is? is defense support to civilian authorities. So how they get DOD to help civilians. Right. So, which is what we'll hopefully spend some time talking about. Absolutely. Too. And then I retired out of Air Forces here in 2021. Okay. So, oh, yeah. gosh. Right during COVID excitement. Yeah. I was on the staff when COVID hit. Yeah, it was fun. So sometimes I hold this question till later when we get to know you better, but let's just cover it now because you talked about flying helicopters. When you came into the Navy, what did you want to fly? Did you want to fly helicopters? My story's a little weird. I didn't know we had aviation until I was a midshipman, second year midshipman. It wasn't something I wanted to do. Never thought of it. And then my buddy got me to skip physics class to go do my flight physical, and I read the pamphlet, and I decided I wanted to fly. My only requirement was I wanted to have a choice, and instruments and I did not get along. So the visual piece is easy, the instrument piece, and I didn't like as much speed. You have a natural tendency to go to helicopters. I chose helicopters instead of big wings because I just thought it was interesting and dynamic to land on a boat. So, Well, and part of the reason I ask is people who watch or listen to the show 
often say, well, if I don't get jets, you know, I don't want to do it. And it worked great for me. I enjoyed flying jets. But I think there's a lot of people, and usually I ask because they, it comes out in them, it's, it's you blossom where you're planted, right? Yeah. So you decided on helicopters, and sounds like you really enjoyed oh, it. Oh, I absolutely loved it. So no regrets whatsoever. So As far as humanitarian assistance and disaster relief goes, Hatter, we can call it for our conversation today. Again, right, as the opener, we talked about we are used to thinking about military as going somewhere and breaking stuff. But we can go somewhere and fix things and help people. And some of the same systems can be useful in both of those. So what are some of those? And let's maybe flesh out how that, in fact, is the case. So one of the things that I think is interesting and awesome about helicopters is whether it's HSM, which are the Romeo guys, and HSC, Sierra folks, partial to Sierra because I'm a Sierra guy, your training track hits both harm and help. So the same JO pilot who fires Hellfire and APKWS, part of his or her syllabus is search and rescue, PR, landing and unprepared landings. So you foundationally and fundamentally, you get both. In real world, you probably do more search and rescue and more PR and more humanitarian assistance than hurt. So I always say that we always bring predictable excellence in all our warfighting missions, but we get to do search and rescue and Hatter a lot more often. You know, Igor Sikorsky is famous for saying a lot of things, but he's also famous for saying, hey, if you're in trouble, a plane can fly over and throw you flowers. A helicopter can land and save your life. So the rotary wing is perfectly suited for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Yeah. So it's that system of in itself. I don't know how you do Hatter, and I don't know how the Navy does Hatter. We don't do Hatter without rotary wing. Yeah. Sam, you know, Brian of the VRM wing will probably tell you that they, they're going to start doing some Hatter in the V-22, and they can, but mm-hmm. you need rotary wing to execute Hatter. So. Well, and that makes sense, right? Because part of my training as a jet pilot was if we do have to eject over water or land, for that matter, some of the rescue signaling devices that we have, and then when the cable comes down, don't touch it till it hits the water, and et cetera, et cetera. And so, of course, that was why, you know, you've probably been on some deployments. There's always some fun amongst air wing bubbas and everyone else, but I was always careful to play nice with the helicopter folks because I figured if I ever did go down and they found out who it was, I didn't want them to say, oh, it's Jello. Well, uh, gee, we can't find him. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually, on, I was on a Mew deployment and Harrier pilots and had one mouthy Harrier pilot would run his mouth and we actually created a no rescue list. And everybody else understood what it was, but he didn't, he's a new guy, didn't get that we were kidding. And he was really concerned about, and we'd say, hey, you know, if you're 30 miles away, it's feasible for me to say, I just couldn't find you and do something, and he came around. Wow. <laughs> All right, so the helicopter, as you said, right, uniquely suited to land in small, austere places. It's got hoists. It's got different things it can do. But also, right, the same you talked about some of the weapon systems that young pilots are learning. Those can also be used to maybe detect survivors or— You can, and most— and. The weapon systems, not so much, but some of the some of the technology in there. Mm-hmm. But the challenge of what I've seen, if, as a pilot, you eject, you've got a beacon, I can home in on your beacon. In humanitarian assistance disaster relief, most people don't have anything. So it becomes a, a visual, it becomes a, a lot of instrument flying. Because one of the things that people forget is if you come in after a hurricane, you still have hurricane conditions. Mm-hmm. So you're usually flying in some bad weather. I always talk about the structure of... Your systems, the structure of your cockpit, the structure of your training allows you to thrive and execute in the ambiguity of humanitarian assistance disaster relief because, you know, the first 24, 48 hours of any kind of disaster is ambiguity or pure chaos. And it's that structure that allows you to get, allows you to execute the mission. Even command and control, the structure morphs. 
post-disaster, there are two flows that generally happen that I've seen. You flow from rescue life and limb to logistics, and you flow from command and control that's haphazard to eventually some sort of structure of command and control. So you just, it's a flow from sh that you go from a lot of ambiguity to something that, that looks like you're used to doing. Mm -hmm. So, And that's actually the fun part is the ambiguity part because it's just you're in and around people you don't work with on a regular basis, especially if it's international, and somehow you just get it all done. And it's sort of a puzzle, right? I mean, people like Sudoku or crosswords because you got to solve this. There are people in extremis, and like you said, that's first. Let's rescue and save lives where we can. And then, okay, let's treat the wounded and do all those things. But probably I would think... I would hope anyway, the military has a system for, hey, in this environment, we already have a command and control structure. So it's just putting them in place, saying who's in charge, and then set up a way to talk, and then just come up with procedures for, yeah, this is how we're going to. Generally, that's the way it is. Yeah. And we are, in the military, we are really good at that. When you start talking DISCA, when you start bringing in civilian authorities, state of Texas when I was there, the military is never in charge. We are supporting. So... We bring a structure to our own, and we can control our own. If you think about Sumatra or you think about Tomodachi, where you have an aircraft carrier and everything's emanating from a now JTF commander from an aircraft carrier, pretty easy command and control. You fall under who you know, mm -hmm. and that structure is pretty easy. Where it starts to differ is when you start getting into states and CONUS, and it's the same concept. You find a way to work through it, and you find a way as a tactician in the aircraft See and avoid on the radio. I'm going from point A to point B. See some people and talk your way through it. You just work within the structure that's chaotic, working to some sort of structure. I mean, eventually what always happens in the couple times that I've done, well, I did, I was in the talk for Texas Harvey. The what? The Texas Operations Center okay. uh, for the state of Texas. I was sitting in there with a bunch of other military folks. Eventually we got to the point where you had a command and control aircraft over the top. Was Harvey when like Houston got something like sixty inches of rain? Two thousand seventeen, Houston okay. Galveston. It was pretty sporty. Okay. It was absolutely pretty sporty. Yeah. But eventually, you got to a point where the command control, instead of just figuring it out, we actually did it on WhatsApp. It became an aircraft overhead taking sort of nine line stuff, and, wow. and but it, it had to get there first, yeah. and it all worked. So helicopters are very effective. What about ships? You mentioned a carrier a moment ago, right? When I think about an aircraft carrier, I think of, again, the destructive force that it can bring. But if it's sitting off your shore, instead of sending in strikes, it's got, what, a bunch of hospital beds. It's got the ability to make clean water. It's got usually a bunch of supplies on board. So Navy ships can also be very effective. Extremely effective. And one of the best things about Navy ships is the same thing for warfighting is I don't need permission to land. I park my aircraft carrier off your coast and I'm self-sufficient. Every time we have a hurricane on the East Coast, we pull ships out of the pier and we take them out to sea. And you look at Harvey, you look at especially Katrina, two aircraft carriers, I think two amphibs. You, you eventually need permission to fly into a state and land and execute. If you're off the coast, you don't need permission to do any of that. So Navy is always seemingly pre-staged for the call when the governor says, hey, I need federal help, the Navy's pre-staged. Additionally to that, USNS Mercy, USNS Comfort are two hospital ships that are you know, the big white fleet that you, they're hard to miss. One here in San Diego, one in uh, Norfolk. I've had the luxury of being on both and they're amazing. It's Balboa Hospital floating off the coast of somewhere. Every time they go somewhere, they take two Navy 60 Sierras on board. On the Indo-Pacific, usually every year or every other year, they do a thing called Pacific Partnership. 
Mercy goes out, goes around the Indo-Pacific, and does humanitarian assistance, disaster relief training, and some surgeries. But you got to fly helicopters in and out. On the East Coast, Comfort will go down to Fourth Fleet and do the same thing in South America. So the Navy is exceedingly well equipped for it. And the best parts are self-sufficient. And all those ships, I think Mercy and Comfort advertise they can make about 200,000 gallons of water a day. We know aircraft carriers should make water all the time, and amphibs make water all the time. The hard part is generally getting the water off the ship and into the zones because you got to put it in something, mm-hmm. uh, and water's heavy. But the ability to do that is unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. Well, plus, they generally have a lot of supplies. So I've seen images and videos of helicopters stopping and dropping off bottled water or food or clothing or whatever might be needed. Because in those early hours, I have to assume whether it's an earthquake or a tsunami or a storm or maybe even civil unrest, but right after has got to be that critical time. It is. The training that we get, they say the first 24 to 48 hours is mm-hmm. the most critical because part of it is it's just it's life-saving. Take Harvey. We got there at Harvey and immediately flying around, you just start, folks were just finding people on the roofs, finding people in boats, finding people and just rescuing them and taking them somewhere else. And then there was two components for Harvey. One was rescue and one was logistics. After you got people out and you put them in holding areas, then the logistics train came to get them water, to get them food, to get them shelter. The opposite version of that is when we were in Sumatra, what I didn't realize is when the town was pretty much destroyed by the tsunami, the folks out in the hinderlands get all their stuff from the town. So a week later or two weeks later, they can't get any food. So it became a central location, and then helicopters, instead of helicopters rescuing people, it's helicopters to go deliver food and supplies to the people who are out isolated. So It's the initial response and then the downstream effects, in a sense, because there's always someone else that's affected by the local, you know, like you said, whether it's their power or food or water or whatever, not just everybody where it happened, but in around the area. And, I mean, unfortunately, on the East Coast, between June and November every year, Helicopter Sea Combat Wing Atlantic is poised for six search and rescue for heavy lift helicopters. They affectionately call it Hurricane Alley. And those places that get hit in Hurricane Alley are small islands who you hit one side of the island, the other side becomes not self-sufficient. And a lot of times things, I've done Puerto Rico and Haiti, and roads aren't passable. How do you get folks anything? You get them via, via air. Yeah. Only way you can do it. Well, the balance has been disrupted, right? So things exist in a certain way until something comes along and disrupts the balance. What about command and control? We sort of talked about it, but right, one thing the military has in spades is not only a hierarchy of people who know to listen or follow or execute or whatever the case might be, but also methods, whether it's radios or data link perhaps or whatever. So can those be useful in a Hatter situation? Absolutely, they all can. And depending, if you take the aircraft carrier off the coast example, your command and control is clear and easy. It may change when you go inland, but there's, but generally in most cases, eventually there's a command and control system that that's get set up. When we did Sumatra off of, I was on Essex, Lincoln was there, and all the helos started at Lincoln in the morning, take, took people in, and the Australians had set up the whole command and control system. And it was, all, it was actually all UHF and VHF radios. And I mean, you had Korea, Japan, we had Russian planes coming in, so it was all international, and we set up with UHF. But we were also were able to use data link back to the ship. We were also able to we use Blue Force Tracker in some cases and some other situations, but there's, there's always some technology that can be used. Mm-hmm. And the command and control of Navy is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. 
when you fall into the Title 32 governor of Texas or Florida, the military side usually sets up a JTF. So that command structure is still pretty clear, but there's a lot of other elements with FEMA and state, and it eventually gets there. But it starts off with, and, and everybody has different capabilities. We've had situations here with Cal Fire and radios couldn't talk to each other. And that grew into, hey, helicopters here in North Island every year, go talk to Cal Fire, make sure you guys can communicate. You know, there, there are systems, and there are systems that, that they have that we just don't have. And just how getting those to work together and figuring out how to, to get the mission done. The good part is, is, at the end of the day, everybody has the exact same mission, just to save people. So the motivation is, is relatively easy. But FLIR is helpful. The guys who did Bonham Richard flying at night, you know, turn on the FLIR to give you some level of better visibility, potentially. So you can use them, just whatever's appropriate. So let's talk about a couple of the different, right? You go back far enough, there's been help from the military to civil and so on for years, but just using your experience. So you were there, let's see, it was 2004, right around Christmas? Yeah, Christmas 2004. As I understand, a huge earthquake under the ocean that lifted the ocean. I remember hearing that it released enough energy to power all of New York City for a day or something like that, or a year maybe. So we were in, I was out of Guam on Essex in the Gulf, and we we heard about the tsunami. Video started appearing pretty quick. Started seeing videos Mm -hmm. of uh, Thailand, and they pulled Essex out. We sprinted up, we met Lincoln, and I remember, you know, seeing it on TV and seeing the videos, you're like, oh, okay, this, we're going to do Hatter. And I remember flying in the first day and just in awe of the destruction from a wave. Because you can watch it, and there's always that video of the hotel in Phuket where you see it come down, and that's devastating. But then you get to see it. My first image was how high the wave went up the mountain or the hill because it just tore everything out. And you're like, that's way up there. And then you roll into the flat part of town, which... You know, you hear that people live, most people live within one mile of the water, and that situation was clear that most people had lived within one mile of the water. I remember landing on a helicopter pad the first day, and as we were getting ready to land on a helicopter pad, we realized it's not a helicopter pad. It's the foundation of a house that's not here anymore that somebody was smart enough to put an H on. And just to see the destruction of, of that was just, it takes your breath away. And then to be able to load up the helicopter and fly 10 hours and just deliver stuff is just instant gratification because it's just absolutely unbelievable. Is part of this, this might be a dumb question, I'll ask it anyway, is part of this dependent on, the, the Essex was able to sort you over there immediately. Well, what was it doing otherwise? In other words, if it was engaged in some sort of other operation, maybe even actual combat, who makes this decision? The president? I mean, someone, at what point, and maybe this is above either of our pay grades, but how do we decide this just happened Here's forces we have, let's send them. Is it if they're not occupied or it's just a... I think it's prioritization. The impact you get to make as a United States Navy when you pull off the coast with an aircraft carrier that helps, you can't beat that. The Essex, we had just dropped off our MU, and our MU was... Actually, we had previously dropped them off. The MU was ashore, and Essex was essentially waiting for the MU to come back to the point where we, when we left Indonesia, we ran back, got our Marines, put them all on board, then took them home. We went back home. They went back home to Japan. So we had a nice time period, and they knew we had helicopters. We pulled all the 53s out of Bahrain. So Bahrain took a risk. Your primary mine warfare units, we took them out of Bahrain to put them on the ship to go do humanitarian assistance. One of the conversations that Lincoln had for Sumatra was, I have to pull off to allow jet pilots to keep their claws. So during periods of doing some of the Hatter, Lincoln would pull off, guys would get their claws back again and come back. Funny story is the boss cleared me to spot eight, and we all went, eight? There's no eight on 
course eight. And you realize that Lincoln had painted extra spots because they were just clearing spots for Hilo. To answer your question, I imagine it's just prioritization, absolute prioritization. And part of the procedure for East Coast ships is if a hurricane is coming up the East Coast, get them off the pier. And if you can get them off the pier and get them behind the hurricane, by the time it hits, you can put helicopters on and you can and you can yeah. go right in there. So they're coming off the pier for safety anyway in a lot of yeah. cases. So, You know, you just mentioned we have quals that perish if we don't fly at night so many times. But humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, you're in your SH-60 doing some good work. I'm in my F-18. I mean, what are we doing? Anything? Nothing. When I go to Lincoln, they were up on the road watching. All the guys are watching and then the for a couple of weeks, they were they weren't flying. For once, we're not the alpha. You, know? you weren't the alpha. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of funny, but spot eight tells you you're not the alpha. So what's interesting yeah. is when I did Harvey, and we flew in, we we based all our aircraft at College Station, because uh, the operations center was College Station. I remember coming out one day and going, "Why is there an F-18 on the flight line at College Station?" And the guys like, "I was coming across country and I stopped to see you guys need any help." I'm like, "I don't know what you're gonna do, but good <laughs> on you for being there." But yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's sort of the nature of the beast, right? I mean, an F-18. It can maybe relay communications. It can maybe use its FLIR. It can, there's certain things it could theoretically do, but it's not, like, I don't know about you, I have a tool chest at home. I don't always reach for a hammer, depending on what I need to do. Absolutely, so. yeah. And the E2 is always helpful. Yeah, the E2 a lot is, of radios, yeah, a lot of people. Like command and control. Mm-hmm. So if you're emanating from a ship that has E2s, the E2 finds its way into the, into the conversation all the time. How right. long did you end up off the coast of Sumatra? We were there for a month. Lincoln beat us there, and the USNS Bridge, was out of San Diego. There's another couple CLF ships, uh, logistics ships, out of Guam that were there also. So it was a whole bunch of folks. So I think Lincoln stayed there a little over a month. Okay. At least the paper I got from Admiral Crowder says January to February 2000. Because in the end, there's always awards and bragging rights. Well, less than a year after that, right, New Orleans, among other places, got clobbered by Katrina. Where were you when that went? I was in Guam watching Katrina from far away. But in contact with a lot of folks that were there, and if you look at the response for Katrina, and we keep talking Navy because we're Navy guys, but Army, Air Force, National Guard are, are all there. I know USS Bataan was there because Nora Tyson was the CEO of Bataan. Two aircraft carriers were there, and my predecessor, a couple before me at the wing, Boomer Smith, when Katrina hit, he raised his hand and said, I'll go down there, and he, he was the helo boss on some aircraft carrier with no nothing but helos on it running logistics back, search and rescue logistics back and forth. Yeah. When I read the, the write-up for Katrina, it, I think we, we sorted 28 ships out of Navy ports to go help. Well, and again, as you said earlier, the first 24 to 48 hours, there was images of people stranded on rooftops. I mean, the devastation was almost unprecedented. Absolutely. And I think it's our, I, I think people say it's our largest national disaster. And they sorted the, there were aircraft in, there were helos in Pensacola. They sorted them, anything that was able to, to go and fly, yeah. go and fly. And, and the benefit for us was if you sorted them, then they can go spend the night on the aircraft carrier. Yeah. I remember, not to take this sideways, but I will anyway. I remember some angst, you know, directed to President Bush at the time. And maybe they were just upset at him for other things. I don't know. But does that bleed over to the military? Like, do you ever get the sense that, oh, you weren't here fast enough or uh, you're not doing enough? I mean, I would hope that the people that are being serviced are just happy to have anybody showing up with a hoist or water or whatever it is they need. There's been been a couple of incidents where people on the ground do silly stuff. But general people are overwhelmingly happy to see you. And the politics of that, we got here when we could, and we're re- ready to go. Part of the challenge is, especially CONUS, is you, 
DOD has to is supposed to wait until the governor asks for reinforcements from federal before they can go fly. So there have been times for Harvey, you know, the aircraft were there for a day before Texas had requested forces from SecDef and President, and the President said, sure. So we had to kind of wait around a little bit in order to get permission to fly. So, But generally, you don't, people are just happy, happy you showed up. So. I did a tour in Japan, loved it, left in 2010, and I think it was March of 2011, they had a pretty significant event with an earthquake and uh, some nuclear issues and tsunamis, et cetera. Where were you for that? Uh, I was the... I just feel... The, no, just hold on. Let me like, ask that differently. Like, where, were where, where were you? Where were you doing that one, Al? No, <laughs> I, I, was, I, was the, I was in my CO tour in San Diego, okay. and um, the, had another... Had a two-bird detachment on USNS Bridge, and... Reagan Bridge, there were a couple, I think it was the CG and the DDG that were with the Reagan Strike Group were there. And I think Essex came out of Sasebo at some point in time. But yeah. I had an OIC who called me and said, hey, we're, we're leaving Guam. We're headed to Japan to, to help out. And he kept me appraised of what was going on and the earthquake to a tsunami to a nuclear devastation. Talking to the folks who did that, and HSC-4 was the primary HSC squadron on that deployment or in the Hatter incident. Mm-hmm. I think they spent a week not going in because J- Japan didn't give permission to go in. Japan was trying to get everything together before they let other people come in. And what they were saying is they spent the first week on the ship just flying over the water looking for people for search and rescue because there was enough debris in the water they were finding people. Finally, when they got permission to go in, some challenges with the radiation. Mm-hmm. I had to shut some stuff down for people flying too close to the plume. But they got the opportunity to go in and, and move and help as, as much as they could. To the point where last, in January, the mayor of Fukushima came to San Diego to once again on the anniversary to thank uh, the Navy for participating. Our um, C2 Greyhound guest, JLo, had talked about some of the C2 response as well. So that aircraft can also be effective in a Hatter situation because that's what it does, right? It moves people and things back and forth. And I think I remember him hearing some of the equipment that they were using or the clothing they were wearing ended up they had to do you know the little ghostbusters thing that okay there's radiation on there so the bridge debt my oic called me and said hey lincoln made me or reagan made me come land geiger counter geiger metered our aircraft it's ready it's hot i have to go do a, a wash and then i have to give all my clothes away and the whole point of his story was he had kept his original flight boots from api and he had had them resold however many times, right. and he had to give them up. That was the devastation because they were radiated. Well, that's so. obviously, right, pales <laughs> in comparison to the devastation. It a- needs not be said, but I yeah. will anyway, of the people who suffered through all that. But I guess the point is, right, when you join the military, you have certain sacrifices, and it might be in combat, it might be in response, but when we're called upon, we respond. Yeah, you take some risk. We go through risk management all day long, yeah. figure out what's the best way to mitigate it. So. Crazy. How about, let's see, 2017, you've mentioned Harvey. So was that the one you were most involved with? As an operator, Sumatra, Indonesia, and then Harvey, I was the deputy commander of the wing. And as I said, is the for NORTHCOM, the fleet forces to see now, Navy is required to have a DISCA package all year, every year, but really from June to November for, for hurricane relief. So we were watching as Harvey was heading towards Texas and Irma was right behind it heading towards Florida. And we knew we were going to have to have to do something. Didn't know when or how or, or what ship. It wasn't going to hit Norfolk, so you had to make the decision to pull the ship out, get a ship around, and go. And we, we'll just go 
someplace. Mm -hmm. uh, we picked JRB Dallas because the other part is if you pick USS whatever, you don't have to ask permission. If you pick JRB Dallas, which is the military base, you don't have to ask permission. Mm -hmm. You just go sit there and wait for the governor to call and you go. But when I landed off the plane and I was driving to Dallas, they called me and said, turn around, go to College Station. We were switched to College Station because Texas gave us permission and they wanted people to stash in College Station. So we had search and rescue in College Station and 53s at the Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And when we got the call, when it became a Title 32 thing and they asked for uh, federal help, our JTF commander for search and rescue was in Florida waiting for Irma. Our logistics JTF commander was in Army guy in Texas, so I kind of dual-headed myself under two JTF commanders. And we, when we got permission to go fly, we just we went flying. And it, and it was simply seeing a void on the radios. The weather was terrible, down power lines, and the you know the different Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard. Coast Guard was there first and really did amazing work. You just kind of sectioned yourself, had some course rules, got on the radio, made checkpoint calls, and, and just got it done first 48 hours was hard. Guys were flying on, we ended up flying on goggles at some point in time, went into nighttime and bad weather and they were amazing. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. You talked about Japan essentially at some point inviting the help. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Texas. Is that because, is it the governor who's essentially the one that... So, the you know, federal states' rights. You right, know. Right. So we have the same thing in California. The helicopters on, on base can firefight, and you can't firefight until Texas asks you to firefight. So the, the states will generally go through their, their city, county, state. Then you can mobilize the National Guard for the governor, and then when that's not enough, they'll put an RFF in for federal help. The SECDEF or the president, you get the go-ahead. And what that does, is as soon as you get the go-ahead from the president and the governor says, hey, we'll take all the support we can, it does two things generally. One, it sets up a military JTF. At some point in time, now the military folks have a structure that is there to support the state. And the second thing it does, it sets up the mechanism for the state to repay the federal government all the expenses of Hatter. So as the guy sitting in the room, what was interesting for me is I sit, I'm sitting in the room and the JTF commander calls me and said, hey, Al, I'm... Major General so-and-so, I'm in Florida. Are you okay making all the decisions in Texas for Navy? Sure. What else, sir? He goes, no, just keep me appraised. I'm like, okay. And then the CNAL called me and basically said, hey, you got to keep track of every single dime you spend. And that sounds like a hard thing to do, but with now comas and fuel jets and hotel receipts and 
So the idea is you create all that whole database of information, hand it back to the chain of command, and eventually the state will reimburse what the state can reimburse. What I also learned, and I don't know if Texas ever did or Florida ever did, that SecDef and President can waive that too. So I don't know what happens in that case, but that's how the Title 32 process The point is works. there has to be an accounting, right? Because someone's going to come asking, you know, what did we spend? What did we do? But where do they draw the line? I mean, if you were there, you're drawing a salary as a naval officer. Are they counting? The no, they're not. They're, they're counting specific. The way it was explained to me, they're counting specific expenditures for the state of Texas. So flight hours. Flight you, hours. I mean, if you're dropping off yeah. bottled water, you so many cases of water, that kind of thing. No, because we don't bring any of that stuff ourselves. Okay, so you so might just be moving. We're yeah. showing up to the warehouse and sticking it in the back and moving it where we're told to move it, or. Not even stuff like flight gear, just hotel rooms, food, per diem, that kind of stuff. What so. about when you were off of Sumatra? I mean, are we given a bill to Thailand at the end? I, I, that's above my pay grade, but I've never heard of us doing that. So what's interesting is the um, post-Sumatra, Thailand hit pretty badly. Uh, when we went to pick up the Mew again, we were going back home to Japan, and folks were trying to make a decision of where we stop before we go back home. And the answer goes, Thailand hasn't seen a ship all summer long. Go to Thailand. So we pulled three ships into Thailand, and, and we didn't give them a bill, but Marines and Navy guys spent a lot of money in Thailand. So, <laughs> And it was great. It was awesome. And I, we were actually really impressed how quickly Thailand bounced back. I've yeah. never been. Thailand's I know. A, I need a to go. Place. I just never had an opportunity. Land of smiles. It's awesome. It's so good that I talked about it on my deployment. When I, come, I came home from Guam, my wife goes, oh, I already booked a trip to Thailand. I'm like, okay. So there is a cost accounting and whether it gets paid or not. What about the legal precedent? I mean, so you've thrown out some terms that I have to admit, Title 10 and Title 32, I'm always a little mystified about that. But what precedent is there for, yes, we can legally do this in no matter where we are, whether it's international or domestic? So there is actually, of course, there's a joint pub for DISCA. And it lays out the structure, the national structure. It lays out the process and how DOD, federal government, federal entities are Title 10, state entities, Title 32. The easiest way I've always explained it, if you are a governor of Texas and you have a National Guard, you can mobilize the National Guard generally short term under Title 32, the code for Title 32. If you are a National Guardman, you get mobilized to come on active duty federally under Title 10 orders. So those are the two different kind of orders you can get. So, I mean, that's kind of how, how that system works. As an operator, you don't see it. You don't follow it. You just wait till somebody tells you, am I allowed to go? Am I allowed to go? Yeah, we're, we're allowed to go. The counting piece always comes, and, and, it, and, it, and it generally works out. The counting piece comes out at the end. I will openly admit on this open mic that I didn't wait in Harvey. We didn't get permission yet, and I called the JTF commander and said, hey, I'm going to have my first two birds just, they haven't seen the area. I just want them to do some fantasies. When we get called, I, I want to be able to go. I want to dilly-dally around. And he laughed. He goes, yeah, okay, good luck. And we, I think we did 60 or so rescues before we were given permission. But you just logged it all and went into, into the file, and it, was, and it was all good. I have to admit, I remember Katrina. I don't remember Harvey as well, but was there, because of the significant rainfall, was it similar as far as the flooding and the people being trapped or it, it was pretty big comparatively not the Katrina Katrina was devastating and the geography of Katrina was I mean, with levees in New Orleans and Willowsville was just just devastating Harvey went in and there were parts of Houston that were like really badly flooded but after a couple of days the water started receding so we went in and I was only there I, was, I think I was there for a week deputy came in and relieved me for just a little bit of time but we actually pulled the helicopters out after a week and 
send them to Florida because Irma just hit Florida. They were in Florida for a couple of days, then send them to Iwo Jima, the USS Iwo Jima, and then they went down to the Virgin Islands and did. So those folks, it was HSC-7, Dusty Dogs, and HSC-28, they were gone for almost a month, I, th- I believe, because they went from Texas to Florida to the USS Iwo Jima and then yeah. continued on. The 53s we sent home. So we've talked about the results of natural disasters, and, and I mostly focused on storms so far and earthquakes and whatever. What about fires? Like here in the West, we'll have sometimes wildland fires in the summer and fall, or even a ship fire, right? So right in the height of COVID, we had the USS, what was it, the Bonhomme Richard that was on fire. And I remember driving over the Coronado Bridge with my mask on, I'm sure. <laughs> it was like July of 20. Yeah, but I remember looking over and seeing helicopters with dipping buckets. That's us helping ourselves because that was a military ship. But that's, again, back to the beginning, that's the kind of stuff you're trained to do, right? Is- you are. And what's interesting is I, I was sitting at, I was having dinner probably with a mask on at a friend's house on NAB. You know, we were sitting and looking at, out the backyard going, something's not right. And you, you could see Bonham, because you're right across the, the bay, you could uh-huh. see Bonham Richard in the middle of the day. I was the ACOS for safety. So I got a couple texts of, hey, you were Bonham Richard. I'm like, I'm aware of somewhat of Bonham Richard. Uh-huh. And then I got some texts later on from the community guys saying, hey, we just got, the, we're probably going to get called to do buckets. So fire buckets, you don't do them all the time. There's a, the, the score debt who goes out to San Clemente. So they are trained in fire buckets because you might need it at San Clemente. So Air Boss Miller called HSC3, which is the FRS at North Island for 60s and said, hey, you guys bucket trained. Yes. Do you do it at night? No. Do you do it on goggles? No. You ever done it to a pier? No. So, you know, talking to those guys, the ORM, the operational risk management is, I've got a good structure of, I can do vertical replenishment. I can do buckets, I'm trained in that. I can fly on goggles. I've done some pier side landings, which are never fun. Okay, let's ORM this, mitigate it, and figure out the best way to do it. And they think they start at 10 o'clock at night. There's a Marine Corps JTAC on the pier calling drops. These guys were just going over, dipping in the bay, dropping, in the hole. I've seen some video of it. It's, it's amazing. Dropping in, in the, the hole to go down as many decks. Talking to the guys, the interesting part is it's at night, you're on goggles, you're at the pier and it's bright and it's not where you necessarily want to be as you're coming over the fire on goggles. And as you transition off the ship, you go into the South Bay, completely dark. So they spent those hours just going to transition from dark to light. It's, it's not a fun place to be. But they started two birds at a time, started at 10 o'clock on one day, and I I think they did 57 hours straight, 1,600 drops, like 500,000 gallons of of water. And the reality is, is if they didn't do that, and if they didn't find a way to use the structure and just get it done, my personal opinion is that Bonham Richard would have burned down at the pier. They absolutely saved the ship. So HSC-3, the FRS, the SCORE folks started it, but HSC-3 had been training some folks in buckets because... I was here in 2006 or 2007, that was 2008, when we had huge fires here and we're sitting over there going, the, the Guam guys are, who's the Guam guy? I'm, I'm qualified to fly it. Because in Guam, there's a huge Navy magazine, Naval magazine, so you want guys to be able to drop buckets. We ha- I don't think we've ever been called for, with CAL FIRE to execute, to help fires. CAL FIRE is a pretty robust fire system. But on that kind of instance, I think the wing, HSC wing pack, does an annual sit-down tabletop discussion with CAL FIRE just in case. Because if you get to the point where the state of California asks for military help, you may not do buckets. 
you may not help put out a fire, but you can surely put FEMA folks in there. You can surely put other folks in there and take them places. Right. Ironically now is there's a lot more bucket training going on in North Island, and we've actually postponed and Richard if you're doing it in Norfolk too. As a guy who owned the wing in Norfolk, I'm like, buckets, we, we're not going to do buckets for it. It doesn't, it doesn't burn in Norfolk. And now that the bottom of Shard is a lesson learned, and it's, it's a fun, not hard thing to do, but they're doing it in 53s and 60s in Norfolk now, just in case. Wow. Yeah. Are we still flying 53s? I thought we, we <laughs> I thought those were mostly gone. Oh, is, you're is that bringing, a whole separate oh, podcast? You're, 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 you are tearing away the scar of that because as a, the wing commander in, in Norfolk, I'm a 60 guy, and the 53s fall underneath the wing, and we got some fire scouts, and 53s love them to death. Nimble aircraft, that huge yeah. thing is, I've flown a couple times. It's so nimble and so fast. It's awesome. But they are the only thing that can really do the detect-to-engage sequence of mine warfare. So to let them go, the Navy's 2027, I think, is the date. Okay. I tell people all the time, it's like, I didn't go 53s coming out of flight school because I wanted to go 53s in Sigonella because you're flying 53s around the med. Because somebody told me they were going away. I'm like, that was 1996. And, we're, hey, we're still flying 53s. And those yeah. guys those guys do heroic work in those aircraft. There are 29 of them. You always have seven deployed. So the churn always has to happen. It's amazing what those those yeah. folks do in 53. I did have a chance to ride in one. I was coming or going to the ship and somewhere. And, yeah, it was, it was cool. To be fair, my question was directed at the Navy. We, the Marines are flying them and getting new ones, right? The CH-53Ks, I think. CH-53 Kilo. Super Stallion. Super Stallion, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a beast. It's amazing. And in the end of this, so right when we go off and support Operation Iraqi Freedom or Allied Force or whatever, it's not uncommon to have a, a grip and grin, as we call it, but, you know, awards or different things. Do people come out of this and like, oh, so-and-so flew this many missions, and so we're going to give them this ribbon or this citation or whatever? I mean, it's not why we do it, but inevitably. A- absolutely. I mean, to the point where the conversation always happens that – if you look at the definition of what an air medal is for, it's essentially an MSM in the air. Meritorious service meritorious, medal. Service medal. So it's meritorious service in flight. The normal connotation of an air medal is something in combat and so on and so forth. So post-Harvey and post-Bonham Richard, some of those clues got air medals. And generally what happens, and I'll give you an example for Harvey. So we did Harvey. I came back. The same group did Irma in Florida and then went to the Iwo Jima and came back and I got the phone call that acting SEFNAGV is coming, CNO is coming, and everybody comes over to the, give out awards or say hello to the to the squadrons to do it. And SECNAV flew out for Bonham Richard to HSC-3. One of the benefits of, it's a disaster, but it's a great recruiting tool for Navy or, or DOD. So when we did Harvey, the press comes in and, and you go through the whole process of, of having a press person in the back of the aircraft when you're executing rescues. Well, and again, right, for the operators, it's not why we do it, but it's just a nice little, hey, someone noticed that we worked hard because those can be very long hours. You mentioned something about flying 10 hours. Did you really fly that long? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we survived 10 hours in a 46 doing vert rep. 10 hours is is long, but we generally, we, for Harvard, we did day and night check. You try to get it under 10, but 
in those situations, you do as much as you can. So. All right, Alan, I have some listener questions I want to pose to you. So these are folks that support the show on Patreon, which is a system that allows us to not only get support of those who enjoy the show, but they get certain perks. And one of them is I say, hey, I'm going to sit down with Sugar Bear, I'm trying to get used to that. Me too. And uh, we're going to talk about humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. And they say, oh, cool. So for example, Michael Tenish says, in the event of a major incident, assistant comes from different countries with different hardware and means of communication. How is security insured during flight operations? So you talked earlier about Sumatra. Russians showed up, you know, Koreans showed up, everybody showed up. Some were more chummy with than others. Is it that everybody's in the same mix and you just try to figure it out? Or is it, hey, why don't you go do this here? We'll do this there. Those guys are going to do that there. And everyone has a lane. It depends. So for the rotor wing piece in LU Sumatra, like I said, the Aussies had the main hub and they set up the course rules. And everybody, didn't matter who you were, get on the same radio frequency, make the same calls along the way. And, and that was easy for us. I, I would say the security piece, whether it's security of aircraft or security of information or gear, the way I've always described it, you take an air show aircraft, one that anybody can get in, push the buttons, uh, you don't bring any of the secure stuff. So before you take off, you don't bring any ComSec, don't bring any, you just bring a nice clean aircraft that does humanitarian assistance as that's relief. One of the benefits of Navy is at the end of the day, every day, you go back to the ship. So the security of the aircraft generally isn't a problem. Sumatra, the airfield, there were folks would stay there and post their own. The, I never talked to the Koreans. They had they kept their aircraft there and they just posted a watch there. And so it, the security security problem wasn't really an issue. So. And it, it probably wasn't that they were worried about sabotage or someone attacking. It was just we don't want something to walk off. So we have to put someone in in front of these multi million dollar aircraft. You know, our benefit is we go back to the ship. Well, Michael's second part of the question, though, is what about communication? So, again, a VHF frequency is a certain megahertz range that works whether your radio is Russian or American. doesn't matter, and, and, yeah. and everybody's speaking English, which was interesting. International language of aviation, so that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't – I don't recall any communication challenges at all. Greg Lund asks, Hatter responds militarily to aid in civilian disasters. But what do when L.A. County, let's say, sends firefighters for a suburban SAR, do they work under the same guidelines and chain of command or are they independent? So I think Greg's question is, when there's military and civil together, will they also fold in like you just described or will they? You can. So the like I said, the, the, the military side command and control will, will always be separate and they'll, they'll all be supporting. In that case with L.A. fire, if we're at the point where military is supporting state, then you can stick them in the back of the aircraft and take them places. Then, then that structure will, will, will happen. The easiest example is whenever you do it had her at home, you end up moving FEMA folks all over the place. So you fall under the same umbrella. Your command structure isn't the same. Like I can't tell Adelaide Fire what to do and they can't tell me what to do, but you're all there under the same overarching umbrella and you can work together. So Yeah, you're at least aligned in the goal, if not in the exact procedures. And and you get the wonderful piece of paper that says that you can fly on this aircraft and you can move them around. So, John Clark, what measures are taken to ensure goods go directly, this is a good one, to the people in need and not local politicians and warlords that seek to profit from a controlled distribution? Hmm, sounds like somebody's gone somewhere. I'll tell you what they told us in Sumatra and Haiti. Uh, it wasn't our responsibility as the deliverer of goods to decide whether or not that person standing out there in uniform was doing the right thing. They told us as operators to stay out of it, but they part of the conversations that we had up the chain of command is, hey, we need to be concerned about who's going to be there in Thailand and then in Sumatra, the local military 
would control the LZs. And part of that was is because as you land in there and 500 people come out and they, they, you're trying to get, in your, get the food out of your helicopter and it's just not a safe environment. How do we guarantee that? I would, I would have to defer that to the State Department. But it's, it's a, I've seen it to where you're, you question it. but It's a know, valid concern. I mean, right? Absolutely. Uh, Somalia in the early 90s yeah. was, uh, that was an issue. Yeah. Haiti. Yeah. Right? But I think about it when, on the few occasions, I will actually give some money to a panhandler on the street. I like to think that it's going to help that person and not go be spent on booze or cigarettes or yeah. something else. I don't know if hope alone is a good tactic, <laughs> hope, but hope's a strategy. Hope's <laughs> not a very a good one. Not a good, good strategy, not but good I, mean, one, but I mean, the way I always thought about it is you're giving people, at least there's an option of that food going to a good cause. Yeah. If you don't bring it or, you, or you're concerned about, hey, if I give it to this guy, at least you're giving them an option right. that is possibly going to a good cause. So, And same thing with a panhandler. Yeah. Joe Kunzler asks, how are landing sites chosen? I suppose you look for solid foundations where the house is gone and someone painted an H. But isn't it always part of the helicopter training to land in unprepared? Yeah. So I would say the humorous part of that is Mother Nature picks the landing site. Uh, and then part of the structure into ambiguity, again, is you do unprepared landings, landing in, in the dirt. And then you do confined area landings where, hey, can you get your aircraft into this zone? Sumatra was the challenge for 53s more than it was for 60s, but they always want us to land in baseball fields, which are great if you're in the outfield, but in the infield, it's not great because it's all dirt. And standard joke is, hey, if they make you land in the infield, make sure everybody's out of the way before you take off because you will blast everybody who's watching before you go, and that's just not a good optic. But And the landing sites are picked by in command and control by, you know, where they are or where they, where they need. What we saw in, in some places, and the, the folks I know in Tomodachi said, schools were somehow the place that survived and somehow the place where people gathered. So landing sites were done by schools. In Sumatra, it was, hey, what's the closest to the road that people can get the goods that they needed? So, In Extremis, will there be an option to not even land? Just, hey, here's some folks that we need to get, but maybe for right now, we'll just kick out some supplies. Absolutely. And mark I mean, their location and come back. Absolutely. Yeah. Any way possible. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Niels Hansen, is Hatter part of your normal training cycle? The structure for Hatter is unprepared landings, combat logistics, you know, buckets are part of it. And that's why I talked about the, you know, part of your training track is the, called the hurt and the help. Mm -hmm. So it's part of your normal training track. Doing a large scale exercise doesn't happen very often. I know that the two mercy and comfort are part of the two large scale exercises. And those tend to be more about the medical help that you can do. But every time we send a detachment on, on either one and they bring doctors on board to look, at some point in time, you have some military folks come on and talk to the, to the air jet about how do you guys do this? How do you guys do that? So there's some training there. I know in HSC 12 and now it's HSC 14 out in Japan, at the squadron or at the wing level, you can find different places to do. I know folks have gone in the Philippines and done some sort of hatter and may, it may just be, hey, here's how we land. Here's how we do stuff. And you can integrate it in part of your training track. The East Coast will, starting in April, tabletop some whole hurricane relief thing starting for June and November. So it is part of it. And depending on where you are, it is really part of your training track. Yeah. Well, uh, probably the relative likelihood of something happening, right? I mean, like you said, June to November is pretty well known that storms are going to come something's over. Gonna, and something's going to happen. Somewhere, yeah. yeah. What about the future of this as far as... I feel like the conversation has been we've taken aircraft and systems that we have in place and we've adapted them to this mission. 
Is there any discussion, or maybe it's already happened, I'm just not aware of it, of, hey, next time a ship deploys, let's say a carrier or a marine-type gator, that we're going to put on there maybe some buckets or put on something that could be useful if they're called for this mission? Do you see anything like that in discussions? I haven't, but the reality is if, if that aircraft carrier goes out or the LHD and they're pretty much capable for most header missions. The bucket thing is interesting. I don't see us taking buckets on for the aircraft carrier. Please don't. I don't, are, know. Are, are they, don't they collapse? They, they collapse, but yeah. just, you know, if you have to fight a fire out to sea on your own aircraft carrier or on your own ship with buckets. It uh, could make the difference. It, it, fire it, at sea is, is as you well yeah, know. It's not, it, yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know. I, what I think is interesting potentially in the future is, is there an unmanned piece for header? Do you get to the point where, I mean, if Amazon's talking about delivering your packages via drone, does there become an option for unmanned peace during Hatter? I mean, CNO Yilde talks about, you know, the forces, certain percentage, 60% unmanned. Does that include Hatter? I don't know. Maybe it does. Delivering goods, probably. Rescuing people, probably not. Well, it goes back to what we've talked about, right, is what assets do we have and what can they do? If we have something that's used to looking for bad guys that we're trying to identify and track, Maybe it can look for survivors and and, and locate and or drop LZs, a, yeah, yeah, and say, hey, we've got folks over here, we've got folks over here, and when they need our help. Well, we're almost done, Alan. But I want to ask you: Is there any mission, particularly whether it was Sumatra or elsewhere, that kind of stands out in your mind? Something you were involved in? Of these, either had a big impact, or maybe it's funny. That's the thing about this this career, <laughs> as you well know, right? Is we do some really serious things, and the paradoxical side of that is sometimes there's amazing humor involved. And so those can be fun stories, too. But is there anything that stands out when you look back at your career? Because you said at the beginning, you probably did more helping than hurting. So the air ambulance detachment in Iraq was unbelievably fulfilling. We had people from four or five different squadrons come all together, and your, your only mission was to get out of bed and be airborne in nine minutes to go help somebody out. You were required to do that, and we met that all the time, and it was an awesome thing. On the funny side, there's... Um, an operation that we do in Guam, and I don't. I, hopefully, they're still not calling it the same name, but um, there are a lot of brown tree snakes in Guam, yeah. and it's hard to control the population. If you go around the base, you'll see containers with dead mice in them, and it gets them in there, and they catch the brown tree snakes. Right. So the HSC twenty-five on a regular basis takes little mice with little parachutes and throws them into the jungle out of a helicopter for the agriculture or farmland. That, uh, it, yeah. Are they feeding the snakes? I think they're either poisoning them or <laughs> some sort of, you know, I don't know what they're doing. But you, you routinely throw mice out of We used to do it, but I don't know if they do it anymore. So I don't know if yeah. you're aware of the episode we had on the C7 Caribou recently with Bob, but we had a story. In fact, we pulled out a segment of that and put it on our YouTube channel about dropping cows with parachutes to the Green Berets in Vietnam. So you've just set a precedent now. We've got to ask our guests about what animal have you dropped with parachutes? Because <laughs> now we're cows and mice. So we might have to start putting silhouettes on our walls here in our studio or something. So I guess that they, they weren't live cows, were they? You need to listen and watch. Okay. Yeah. They were alive when they went out of the... So do they touch him to tuck and roll? Or uh, do they... That's, well, that's it, probably... A... <laughs> per the story, the, the first few with parachutes landed just fine. And whoever was the recipient of the cow, was like free cows from heaven. That's what we called it. After a while, they decided not to bother with a parachute. So again, you, you need to go. Yeah, I'll you go need to go to that. Yeah, like, that's, yeah. A, that's a much better anyway. story. Yeah. Well, they're going <laughs> to slaughter the cow anyway, was yeah. the point of it. So, uh -huh. 
Awesome. Well, we talked about the future of Hatter a little bit. I mean, right, we're going to keep doing this as long as there are disasters and humanitarian assistance is required. Military will be there. And not just ours, I assume, right? Did you interact with, um, you said the Aussies set up, was that like Australia as their equivalent of the State Department or is it the Australian military? Australian military. And and on one of the other islands was that whole facility was run by the French. All over the place. Yeah. So. All right. So American and everyone else will be sending military to help as long as humans are in need of some sort, hopefully. Absolutely. Uh, what about the future for you? What uh, You're retired now as a Navy captain and, and working for Lockheed Martin, you said, and living on Coronado. Dude, the credits are rolling on your movie. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people my I landed in a great spot family wanted to be here and my wife has we've transitioned in the sense of it's not about me anymore and my wife has transitioned to a job that she adores and she's absolutely great at and it's just fun to watch her do something that I did for 28 years that I loved and she got to listen to me talk about that now I it's it's the opposite way around I mean my job at Lockheed is great because it still ties me back to naval aviation I still get to do that but watching her knowing that she doesn't have to move anymore and she can settle and she's in this job and she absolutely she's making a huge impact and she loves it it's just i can't i have i have all first world complaints so <laughs> well that's not a bad thing no so it's that's not a good. bad thing well, at all. and plus like you said you still get to hang around the people that you enjoyed for so long and uh how many years did you say you ended up serving i did 30 total i did 28 and a half as an officer i did a year and four months as an uh, enlisted Before. man, 1988 here uh-huh. in Boost. Yeah. Okay, Boost, yeah. yeah All awesome. right, and how many flight hours did you end up with? 3,600. Uh, okay. Yeah. 46, and then? Uh, a thousand in the frog. Wow. Uh, my last flight in the squadron, I went over a thousand hours. Oh, cool. You were not letting me leave here with 990-something. <laughs> so. Yeah, because nobody makes a 999-hour patch. You need the thousand-hour patch. Well, I've been looking. In fact, I live next to a gentleman who flew frogs in the Marines. So if I can get him to come in the uh, studio, if you don't mind, you can join me over here on this side, and, and we can berate him about the beloved frog and how it compares or contrasts to the CH-47. To me, I always think they're the same, and I realize that's probably a heresy. So. Yeah. Sorry. So, so uh, the, the perspective I always give people, I think the 47 carries as much fuel as the frog weighs. Wow. So, so they only they, look vaguely alike. They're the okay. same shape, not even close. Right. It's just it's a huge aircraft. So Cool. 47's a beast. Huh? Good. Well, before I let you go, as much as it pains me to ask about Sugar Bear, Alan Worthy, how on earth did someone come up with Sugar um, Bear? I am a late call sign guy. So my whole life, last name is Worthy, so the natural tendency is to give me something that goes with Worthy. And everything they gave me didn't seem to stick. You know, mm-hmm. hey, are you worthy? Hey, not so worthy. You know, Swift has that one. And all the call signs I got just didn't seem to stick. And as I transferred to different places, it didn't stick. So my my XO, Trade Hay, he saw the Golden Chris cereal. Was, the mascot is a little bear, uh-huh. and he calls him Sugar Bear, and he's very laid back. And Trey said, you remind me of the guy in Golden Chris cereal. And he wouldn't call me anything else. Every time he introduced me, every time we were somewhere, he just and he just kept going and going and going. And people, Some people picked up on it. But the reality is, is most people don't call me because you don't refer to me as Sugar Bear. Most people don't. Well, it's, um, it's just, it's just kind of... The hurts coming out. It, it, so that's, that's I, the, I feel like I should call you something derogatory. Yeah. And that's how we do it. Yeah. But <laughs> so the only people that actually use a Debbie at the I bar won't call me anything else. Yeah. So All I'm right. okay with that. We, we had Sunshine on the show and as a co host for uh, a number of episodes. And it was the same thing. He was just such a sunny guy. It just fit him so much. But I don't know if you, well, I imagine it fits me, but yeah. 
It is what awesome. it is. Well, what did I not ask you about humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, or defense support to civil authorities and everything we talked about today? I mean, it sounds like a really important, I would say, part of what we do. And part of the military is the threat of, if you're doing something we don't like, we have the opportunity to smack you. But the other side of that is, if you're doing something and people are hurting, we have the opportunity to help you. And I think that's really the key message for today. Absolutely. And, and there are people who want to come into the military to help. People who want to be doctors, people who want to come in the military to help. And this is another avenue to do it. And to see it, sometimes it's painful to put a reporter in there. You don't always want to do that. But to watch it on, on TV and go, hey, that's the Navy coming to New Orleans. That's the Navy coming to Texas. That's the Navy coming to Florida and help us out. I mean, people want to be part of that. And we should never hide away from that. We should show them. We should show them all the F-18s flying and dropping them. We should do all that, too. That's all important stuff. But, you know, having that on, on our calling card, too, is important. So, and, it's, and the other part is we thrive in chaos. We love the making decisions on the fly. That is all finding a way to get something done when it's just all happening in front of you. And you come out of the aircraft at the end of the day, and you're like, that was awesome. I'm not going to be able to sleep for the next couple hours, but it's it's absolutely an awesome feeling to get done. So I love it. For sure. Well, Alan Worthy, Sugar Bear, thank you for joining us on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I uh, had a lot of fun, learned a lot, and I look forward to seeing you around Coronado where we both live. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Appreciate yeah. it. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.